Good morning, how's everybody doing this morning? It is an absolutely gorgeous day, isn't it? It is so wonderful to see you all. Hey, um, while we were sitting here, I, I really felt like the Lord was asking me to um, kind of remove distractions. How many of you have felt like a little distracted this week, this morning? Anybody besides me feeling a little distracted? All right, well, there's one honest person. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, what I'd like to do, can we just say the Lord's Prayer together and let's focus our attention on what Jesus and the Holy Spirit has for us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, yeah. amen. It is so wonderful to see you all. If you're new with us, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion. Uh, we are so glad you're here. Uh, this morning, I had an opportunity to talk to several people that are visiting our amazing, beautiful town. How many of you are grateful for Clear Lake? Isn't this place beautiful? And for our visitors, I got to tell you, I talked to so many people when they find out we live here. They're like, you guys live in this place? Yes, we're so blessed. Uh, if you are new and visiting, thank you so much for joining us. We are here every Sunday over the summer. Uh, if you're in our community and looking for a spiritual home, a community, hope, we hope that you'll consider joining what God is doing here at Zion. God's doing some pretty remarkable things, and I hope that you'll consider joining it. Uh, we're in the middle of our summer series called This Is How I Fight a series dedicated to helping us better understand the world we live in and the battle in the raging, a raging battle in the unseen invisible world that the Bible calls the heavenly realm. Now, if you've missed any part of this series, I would encourage you to go online or to uh, download Zion's web uh, app or go on our website and check out what God's been doing so far. Uh, we've also had some really great conversations on our Zion podcast called The Breakthrough Breakdown uh, where if you're not familiar with that, it is a podcast where we go deeper and we talk more about what we've learned on Sunday and the things we've processed through. And it's a great opportunity to hear different voices and perspectives. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking not at what spiritual warfare is, but rather understanding the devil's tactics for attacking God's people in the world. Now, our first step in fighting the lies, the schemes and strategies of the devil, it, we make it sound simple, but in reality, it's incredibly hard. I mean, let's be honest, it's easy to say resist. It's a whole another thing to actually resist, right? Now, I'll tell you one of the things that so often bugs me about most people when it comes to whether it be writers or speakers or teachers, coaches, and yes, pastors, we're all kind of guilty of one sin. And it's called oversimplifying. How many of you ever felt like you're listening to somebody and they just make it sound way too easy? I mean, I mean, let's think about it. You're in the middle of this battle and here you got a guy standing up here saying, it's simple, just resist. But the truth is, it's far harder than that, isn't it? I mean, if it was as simple as just a simple resisting the enemy, I think we would all be experiencing victory all the time. Uh, many years ago, a good friend of mine was doing MMA, that's called Mixed Martial Arts, and he was studying and, and, going, and going to classes, and he decided that he was going to put his skills to the test. And so he decided to enter into a, a match 
which is fighting. Now, they have gloves and they wear the gear and all that to kind of protect themselves. And, and we're looking at them. Now, here's the difference between men and women. All the women in his life were like, dude, you're dumb. Don't do that. And all the dudes are like, yeah, it's going to be awesome. And so we go to support our friend who is doing this for the first time. And he gets up. And this guy that he's going against probably weighs 40 pounds more than he is. And he's not a small guy. And he's a few inches taller. And the first round, they're going toe-to-toe. And my friend is kind of hanging. Like, he's holding his own. And we're actually pretty impressed. And then the second round happened. And we're watching. And he takes... A shot to the face and all of a sudden we watch his hands do this and they start doing this and he's just kind of wandering around the ring and we're all yelling put up your hands put up your hands and he's no clue what's going on and he eventually gets knocked out and after the fight we asked him I'm like dude did you not hear us say put up your hands and this is word for word what he said I heard what you said it just didn't make sense Now, here's the thing. When you're in the middle of a battle, when you're in a fight for your life, when the enemy is coming after you, it's easy for someone like me to stand up here and say, just put up your hands, just resist. But how many of you know that feeling when you feel defeated and putting up your hands, you just don't know what that means? Anybody know what I'm talking about this morning? And and this is kind of the hard part about the spiritual fight that we're talking about is it's easy to say resist, it's a whole other thing to do it, and this is why we're never supposed to be in these fights by ourselves. We need healthy, strong community of Jesus-loving people who when we're defeated, when we feel like we just don't have the ability to fight, who will come into the ring with us. We need people that will fight with us, and this is part of the reason one of our core values and missions as part of our church, is to belong. Now, you've probably heard me say this, is you don't have to believe in Jesus to belong to a church. Now, to be a part of God's family, 100%. But I know that there are some of you here today who have questions, you're wrestling with doubt, you're uncertain about this Jesus thing, and and here's the thing, I get it. And, And you can be a part of what God is doing here and still have questions, still not be sure that Jesus is the way, but I want to make this abundantly clear. While belonging is one of our first values, we 100% want you to believe in Jesus. We are unequivocally a church that is all about Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? And because of that, when someone belongs, we hope that they feel welcomed part of our family because this is a pretty amazing community. I'm watching the things that God is doing in and through Zion, and it's not because of me, it's not because of our staff. It's because of the community who is leaning in and pressing into Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. And here's the part, and here's what I want you to hear. When it comes to resisting, when it comes to the spiritual warfare, to the battle that goes on, you were never meant to do it alone. Now, over the last several weeks, I've had several really great conversations, particularly about the last two teachings. And and in the midst of those conversations, one of the ones we talked about was that lie of scarcity. Scarcity is the enemy telling you that you don't have enough, aren't getting enough, and quite frankly, you are not enough. And we resist that lie of scarcity through finding contentment in Jesus, but let's be honest, that's tough in itself, isn't it? It is difficult to be satisfied with Jesus. 
Because we have so many things in our life that tell us that there needs to be more. And instead of pursuing abundance in life through more activities, more money, more time, which it never seems to be enough of, we end up chasing abundance if we do that. Instead, we seek abundance in Christ. And we discover that Christ Jesus' grace is enough. In Christ, you are enough. You have enough. And He is enough. Now, what does that mean? Well, then last week we looked at the second lie. And this lie comes in, it's a perversion of the first one. That is when you find contentment in Jesus, what the enemy wants you to do, he's going to try and tempt you to lose sight of God's mission and purpose for your life as an image bearer of the king. God created you for two primary purposes, and I, I want you to hear these. The first purpose is to know and love God and make him known in the world. That you were created for an intimate relationship with your creator. That is Jesus' desire. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to know you. He wants to fill you with the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity. He wants you to come to him through Christ. But the second is equally important because if you know God, then ultimately what that knowledge of God wants you to do is you want to help the world and the people in it flourish and thrive. And last week we talked about this, what does it mean for us to flourish and that what happens when we lose sight of our purpose, God's design for our life, this leads to this long anguish called languishing. And languishing is where you lose sight of your God-ordained purpose, but something happens that's unique. When you languish, you begin to settle. And what you settle for is you begin to chase after things in an attempt to find purpose. That's kind of what happened to us post-COVID is we fell prey to the world's definition of flourishing, which the world says that how we flourish is by building more things, bigger, bigger empires, by making a name for ourselves and by seeking achievement. But the truth is, none of this will ever satisfy you. Every time you get one thing, the next thing is always right in sight. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? That even when you get that house, there's always a bigger house. Even when you get that dream job, there's parts of it that aren't so dreamy. Even when you have that spouse, that, that the, the ideal thing that you want, there's always more. And here's the reason for this. God created within you and me as image bearers a whisper. A still small voice in us that says that we were created for something more. We were created for more than just existing, more than chasing after the next thing. And this is where the way of Jesus, the, re the real way you and I experience flourishing is not by chasing our own flourishing and thriving, but by helping other people find their flourishing and thriving. That's how we really experience the life. It is serving others. It's coming and helping, helping them to realize. Now, here's the best part about this. You don't have to have a degree. There's no special training involved. You don't have to have wealth. You don't have to have a title in front of your name or be super talented to bring flourishing into the world or into your neighbor's life. Promoting thriving and flourishing in the world is practical. It's a simple as loving others, seeking the good of others. And for us here in Clear Lake, it's seeking the good of our city. One of our things is we want to love our city for Jesus. 
And as we as a community begin to set our sights and attention on not to how does Zion get blessed, but rather how do we as Zion bless our community, it's amazing how we flourish in the process. It's seeking the relief in equality in hardship. Meaning that when we see people who are oppressed, that our hearts break for them and we seek to allow the oppressed and the disqualified, the forgotten, the set aside that we seek for them to be elevated, for them to be cared for. It's found in building others up and valuing others, encouraging sound doctrine and teachings about Jesus. Helping the world and others flourish is meant to be practical. Now, last week I shared about this woman at Menards who's got this incredible infectious joy and attitude. And it was funny, I, I spent all of about three minutes with her. And by the time I walked out of Menards, I was like, I feel great. That's an example of practical flourishing. And now here's the best part about it. A woman who was here Sunday morning heard me talking about this woman and knew exactly who I was talking about. So she sees my wife and she goes, hey, you got her name wrong. Her name's not Michelle. Her name is Marilyn. And how many of y'all know Marilyn? Come on now, Marilyn. Is like, you meet people like that. They help bring flourishing in the world. Now, after I talked about this, and this is one of the things I love about our community, is we have people who share these stories. Now, we have a word for these stories where we see good and we bring God's goodness in the world. It's called tov moments. How many of you guys remember what tov moments are? Tov in Hebrew simply means good. Our goal, our desire as a church is not just to do good, but to bring God's goodness, God's tov into the world. And when we see these tov moments, we celebrate them. So I got this text message from Corey Frye. And here's what Corey wrote. She was at Mercy this week, and while she was sitting waiting for her appointment, she saw this frail woman in a wheelchair praying. Now this is her texting me this. She says, she made me smile and, prayed and I prayed discreetly for her as well. After a while, I got up to throw something away and the woman motioned me to come over to her with her long, skinny fingers. She's so dramatic in the way she texts this. She said, I just want to tell you that I love you. I said, well, I love you too and I'm so glad I'm here with you today. And Jesus loves you too. And this is what the woman said. Oh, yes, he does, honey. <laughs> I can just picture her saying it like that. I don't know if that's how she said it, but that's how I hear it in my head. He loves the both of us so very much, she said. I told her that I loved her hair. She had combed it in a neat little tiny cornrow braids. Then she gave me a hug that felt so good. I saw some people around us smile. She finished with, and this is what Corey ended with, I'm not sure if I was the light for her, but she sure was the light for me. I just wanted to share this. This is the best part in the power of helping other people flourish. When you go out of your way to help other people flourish, you end up flourishing too. When you go to be the light to somebody else, you have no idea how God might use them to be the light in your life. This is what it means to bring tov, to bring God's goodness in the world. And you can only help the world and others flourish when you put the needs of others before your own. But that's so easier said than done, isn't it? Especially when you've had a long week, when you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're lonely. All of these things come up. Now, with that being said, I think we would all agree, we all need more of this in the world. Can I get an amen? We need more people like this. This morning, we're going to turn to a scripture and we're going to talk 
about another way that the enemy tempts us, and sometimes we do it to ourselves. So if you would stand with us, if you have your Bibles, or if you want to open up the Zion app or turn to Zion's Facebook page, we're going to read from Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30. I'm going to give you all a second to turn there. Matthew 11:25 25 to 30, again, either in your Bible, your Zion app, or on the Facebook page. And once you got it, we're going to read this all out loud together. You all ready? Nice and loud. Here we go. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy And my burden is light. The word of the Lord, praise be to God, you may be seated. So last weekend, my wife wasn't at church. She was up in Minnesota with some girlfriends of hers, and they decided to go tubing down the Cannon River. How many of you have ever been tubing down a river before? She was going down, and they had a great old time. And and so here's what she tells me. As they were getting ready to get into the water, one of the people who worked there said, Okay, now listen. When you come to the fork in the river, make sure to go right, or maybe it was left. I don't remember which direction. The ladies are going down the river in their tubes, having a good old time. They're laughing, having fun, and they were so distracted in the moment when the fork came in the river, they went the wrong direction. So instead of going right, they went left. Now, there's only two reasons why your guide, so to speak, tells you that when the fork comes to go one of two directions. The first is, is that the river is really deep and one side is more dangerous than the other. The second is that the river is too shallow and you'll end up hitting the bottom having to walk and pick up your tube. Needless to say, The river was running a little shallow that day, and as my wife describes it, what was supposed to be a three or four hour float down the river became a five to six hour trip. Now, if you've ever been down tubing down a river, tubing is way different than the lazy river at a water park. You guys ever been to Great Wolf Lodge, right? You get in that little warm body of water that just goes in circles, and and here's the thing about lazy rivers versus tubing down a river. Lazy rivers are consistent. They're man-made. Sure, you have to deal with kids and other people, but the water is warm, the water flow is consistent, and the water levels never change. Real rivers are not like this at all. Now, occasionally, the biggest challenge for you at a lazy river is waiting for a tube to come and avoiding obnoxious people and the occasional sudden warm spots that you weren't counting on. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Here's the difference. Tubing down a river, a real river, the current of the river takes you in the direction you want to go, but you still have to pay attention. There are decisions to be made. There are obstacles to be avoided. It's still fun, but there's unknown. It's true adventure. 
Now, here, where am I going with this? This morning, we're going to look a little differently at this story, and particularly the story of which Jesus, or this, this phrase that just Jesus talked about, about that our yoke, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So when we're tubing down the river, what would happen if you're more focused on the destination, meaning, okay, the end of the river is in four miles and we got to get there and, and I got to make sure that we get there in the right way. What if you're so caught up in worrying about the destination that you forget to enjoy your friends? When you miss the experiences, when you actually miss the river itself, what happens when you completely miss the point? When you're so distracted that you miss the fun of tubing down the river? I think this happens for a lot of us as Christians. We get so caught up in the destination that we actually miss the real point of this whole journey called life. Now, the Bible doesn't say these words, but I think there's a phrase for it. It's called human striving. And human striving is different than Holy Spirit striving. Striving in itself is not bad. Here's what striving simply means. It means to work toward, to put great effort or fight towards a certain goal. The Apostle Paul actually encourages us to strive in this race for Jesus to love and follow Jesus. He writes this in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. That's Holy Spirit striving. That's you striving through the power of the Spirit to run the race of life that God has given us. This is Spirit-empowered, Jesus-centered, gospel-directed striving, and it is good. It's tov. Human striving is different. Human striving is an easy trap to fall into, especially for us as followers of Jesus. Remember, if Satan can't defeat you because you already have the victory in Christ, he will do everything he can to distract and discourage you by trying to convince you that striving in your own strength is the way to go. It's his way of, you, of having you do more, but becoming less in the process. It's that distraction. Here's what I mean. One of our core doctrines as believers in Christ is this. We are saved by grace through faith. Can I get an amen? It is not by works, so we can't boast. It is purely by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. Some of you know this so well that you can even quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It is hard to resist the devil when you're in the middle of the battle and you've just taken a punch in the face like my friend just did. We also have another problem. We can easily forget that salvation is a gift. It's not something you have to work or strive for. You've already got it. I know how easy it is for me to forget that. But I want to look at that verse one more time very quickly. And I want you to pay attention to the order in which Paul talks about it. See, Paul starts off by saying, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. It's something that God does for you, not by works, because if you could do it in your own power, it would not be a gift. It would be a wage earned. Now, 
we read that and we go, great, our salvation, my identity, my relationship with Christ, it's something Jesus did for me and it comes through faith. Praise the Lord, amen, preach it, brother, that's amazing. But here's the problem. We may know this intellectually, but not know it in our heart. We may understand it, but not let it live in us. And what ends up happening is instead of being with God, we tried to prove ourselves worthy of God. And here's the thing. When we look at this, listen to the second part. It starts off with being. That first whole verse is all about your relationship with Jesus. It's about what he's done. It's about connection and intimacy. It's about security in your identity. Then he leads into the second part. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God saved you and he created you for a purpose. Well, that kind of sounds familiar. I think we talked about that last week. But hear this. Now, I want you to hear this. If you're not listening to anything else I say, listen to this right now. It is out of your being with God that you discover what it is God would have you do for God. It is from your being that your doing flows, not the other way around. If you try and do things for God without the relationship, that is called human striving. But when we do things out of the relationship with God, things become more natural. Again, we have to remember one of Satan's dirtiest tricks is to manipulate and distort the beauty and promises of God's truth. When we mistake doing for God as the same as being with God, we've been distracted and now we're moving into human striving, human effort, human doing. We see this play out in a very familiar story from the Gospels. So Jesus, and you may not realize how countercultural this actually was, two of Jesus' best friends were two women, Mary and Martha. They were sisters. Now, you actually, as a male rabbi, you would not have female close friends, much less disciples. These two women were some of Jesus' best friends along with their brother Lazarus. That's a different story for a different time. Well, one day... Jesus and the disciples are walking and Mary and Martha decide to host a party for them. And so Martha and Mary run back to the house. Now, what's the first thing you do when you know you're going to have guests over to the house? You just go and watch Netflix and binge, right? No, you start cleaning up. You get the house to make it look like it's not lived in. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about, right? You don't want people to think anybody lives in your house. So you put all the stuff away. You hide it all. You make the house look presentable because you got guests coming over. Well, Jesus is coming and Martha goes and she starts to prepare the house and she begins serving people. But she looks over and she sees her sister, Mary, not doing anything. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him talk and learning from him. And it says this, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, I got to tell you, I think Martha gets a bad rap here. Some people call it having a Martha spirit, like she's so worried about being busy. But there's an extra pressure you may not be aware of. See, in ancient culture, particularly Middle Eastern culture, and this is true today, 
Hospitality is one of the core ways in which you live and are meant to function in the world. And so when you have guests, it is the responsibility of the woman to get the house ready. The culture defines that. Martha is not distracted so much by the fact that she's like, I got to make everything ready. There's expectations on her to do this. She's doing what in other times would be okay. The Bible actually tells us that hospitality is biblical. It's good. At any other time, what Martha was doing would have been okay. But here's the thing. She was missing the opportunity. Martha's greatest distraction was in that moment she misread the situation. She was going down the river and she had a fork to take. Either the way the world says, which says get the house ready or be with Jesus. And in that moment, she was distracted and she went down the wrong side. How many of you go down the wrong side at times? I know I do. And so here Jesus looks at her and he says, Martha, Martha. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, what does this mean? Well, Jesus is not saying that Martha did something wrong in getting the house ready and being hospitable. What he's really saying is, Martha, you missed a moment. Right now, I care more about spending time with you than I do the house looking presentable, than doing the things culture says. One of the ways that I know that we are really good friends with people is we only half clean the house. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like it's, we, it still kind of looks lived in. There's maybe a few dishes in the sink, but mostly we just throw stuff in the closet. But when it's people we don't know, we make sure it's all gone. When we really know them, it's half gone. And Jesus is saying, I'm okay with your house being messy this is a moment. Some of you think that you need to get your house ready before you can be with Jesus. Some of you think that you need to prepare things so that Jesus can come in. And I want you to hear this. Jesus is not afraid of your mess. Jesus wants that moment with you. Just like he wanted it. And Mary understood that moment. It doesn't mean she always understood it. In that moment, she went the right direction. That doesn't mean she always did. What does this look like for us? Now, we've talked about the Enneagram. For Enneagram people out there, some people think that Martha was an Enneagram too, the helper. I don't believe this for one second because if she really was that, she would have been like, don't you help me, I got this by myself. The reality is, is that what Jesus is really looking at, what Jesus is really trying to get into is that when we are distracted, either because by the world standards, our own expectations, by busyness of life, by trying to do the right thing, sometimes we miss the moment. Sometimes we miss that critical place where Jesus is saying, I just want to meet with you today. She was so distracted by the expectations of the moment that she actually missed the real moment to be with Jesus. This was her river moment. Martha had fallen into the trap of human striving. So what are we, what are we supposed to do with this? Mary was also striving. I, I want you to picture yourself, put yourself in Mary's shoes for a moment. Mary knew that by choosing not to do the things that culture expected of her, that people's eyes were on her, that they were going to judge her. 
that people were going to be upset with her. That's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be hospitable and help. By her being there, she had to strive. She had to step into a different kind of work, sometimes a harder work. There is always work to be done because God has given us a mission. But you know what's crazy? And maybe I'm the only person here who's discovered this. But did you know that when I leave work at the end of the day or when I take a day off or when I go on vacation, when I get back, crazy enough, there's always more work to be done. Y'all know what I'm talking about? No matter what I do, there's always more work. Work is always going to be there. This is why I believe we were created for more than work. We were created for relationship. Work is always in front of us. But let's be honest. Work can be distracting. And, and the hard part is, is that I don't actually even think the enemy, I don't think Satan needs to do much to distract me with human striving. I'm perfectly good at being my own worst enemy in that moment. But God knows this about me and he knows this about you. So he gives us a way to fight back to resist striving. So I want to give you a few strategies, a few ways, and they're not simple. They're not easy, but they're ways that the Lord has said, here's how you resist striving in human effort. The first is through what the Bible calls the Sabbath. The Sabbath was, in its first sign we find in the book of Genesis chapters one and two, God creates the heavens and the earth, and on six days, over six days, on the six days, Sixth day, he creates humanity, Adam and Eve. And then it says this, on the seventh day, God rested. Did God really need to rest? Was he like, woo, man, that was just took it out of me. Did God need six days to create? No, there's more to the story than just what we read. What is going on is this. When it says that God rested, it meant he knew that his work for that time was done. And now he could be with what he had just done. He could be present with it. God calls the seventh day Sabbath, and God declares the Sabbath holy. Now, fun fact, if God created Adam and Eve on the sixth day, it means the very first thing that Adam and Eve did after they were created was rest, not work. The very first thing that Adam and Eve did after they were created is they spent time with their creator. Then they went to work. Sometimes we get that mixed up, don't we? Sometimes we think the goal in life is work and that rest is something that we get to do if we've worked hard enough. This is why God declared work good. Work is good, but he called rest holy. Rest is something divinely set apart by God for our flourishing. Humanity's flourishing, your flourishing does not begin with work. It starts with resting with God. But Sabbath rest is not like taping, taking a nap or net, binge watching Netflix. It's also not about driving your kids to 15 different sporting events every weekend. That's not real rest. Rest according to the way God defines it is intentional rest devoted, set aside as holy for God. There's an author named Shelley Miller and in her book, Rhythms of, Gray, of Rest, she wrote this. God is less interested in how we spend our Sabbath than that he has our undivided attention. More than our effort to separate a specific day of the week for rest, God longs for our presence with him. 
God wants our trust and relinquishment more than any other desired outcome. More than what we do for Him, He longs for us to be with Him, to trust He is working all things together for our good. Resting in God, Sabbath rest is not about a specific day, but about a set-aside time in your life to be with Him and to trust Him. This can be in nature, it can be going for walks, it can be found in cooking and playing board games with your family, and yes, you can experience it here at church. That rest is meant to be an intentional time, but here's the thing. Real rest, Sabbath rest, is the hardest kind of work. It's the work of fighting against the distractions of the busyness of doing work for God so we can do the work of being with God. I fight this every day. Every Sunday I come here and, and here's the thing, for people who work in churches, Sundays are not a day of rest. They're actually our busiest day. And so I have to set aside time throughout my week in which I Sabbath rest in the Lord and I don't do this perfectly. And there's a reason for it, is that every time I choose to rest, it means I'm leaving something unfinished, undone. And here's what I want you to hear, because I understand how difficult this is. It is incredibly brave to trust God with work that is not finished yet. I want to say that one more time. It is incredibly brave to trust God with work that is not finished yet. Before Christ, God's people needed a law to make sure they Sabbath. But now in Jesus, we don't need the law. Jesus is our Sabbath rest, which leads us to the second one. I'm going to invite the band back up as we come to the close on here. This second strategy, it's a way of fighting against the enemy's way. And I'm going to reread our key text for today, our scripture. But I want to read it from Eugene Peterson's message version. And he says this so well. Would you stand with me? I want you to hear and receive this. This is the way the message version says this text. Are you tired? Worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. What are the unforced rhythms of God's grace? It's being in the flow of the river. It's letting the current take you. It's not focusing on the end of the river, but enjoying what and where you are right now. We resist human striving by learning to abide in the amazing rhythm of God's grace and love found in Jesus. What Martha missed out on in that moment when she was serving is that she missed out on Jesus. What he's always wanted for us, what was first modeled for us in the garden is that God wants to rest with you. He wants to find those unabated moments in which you have direct line of sight with the King of Kings, with the Prince of this world, with the God who loves you. There's a guy named Aaron Nyquist. He wrote a book recently, and this is how he says that I learned that Jesus 
is inviting us not primarily into correct beliefs and an eternal destination or behavior modification, but rather into participation in a living, eternally present reality. Through Christ, we get to join the redemption and restoration of all things. God has not given up on the world. Instead, God invites every one of us in the way of Jesus and through the power of the Spirit into the divine conspiracy of overcoming evil with good. And we do this through rest. We begin this work by resting. Now, I, don't, I, I want you to understand, don't miss out on where the battle happens because here's what happens for so many of you here today don't mistake religion for relationship just going to church doesn't mean you have a relationship with the king don't mistake the control of your schedule as rest i see this all the time don't mistake burnout as holy it's not we lean into the wrong way. We get so concerned about right beliefs, right way of thinking that we miss the opportunity to be with Jesus. Our reward is not heaven. It's the God who dwells in heaven. Amen? That is what we're striving for is to be with Jesus. But he's already made the way. We have to rest in that way. We have access to him here and now. Before talking about finding rest in Him, He also talks about a relationship with His Father in Heaven. Jesus understood His identity in the Father. He didn't have to strive to find His way. He already knew it. You and I don't have it that easy. And I want you to hear this. If you have confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are His Son, His daughter. You are a prince and a princess in the kingdom of the Holy of Holies. You don't need to strive to earn that relationship. You don't need to earn that title. You've already got it. What you need to learn to do, though, is rest in it. And out of that being with God, you'll discover what God has called you to do for God. Jesus didn't have to prove He was God's Son, and neither do you. You simply have to live in the knowledge of it. Satan wins one of two ways. The first way is believing that you must prove yourself worthy of identity in Christ. But the second way is equally slippery. It's believing that just because you said a prayer, because you go to church, that that's it. There's no burden, no effort to following and becoming like Jesus. But that's not true. Obedience is hard work. And rest is something God calls us to. We must learn to be obedient in our rest. So here's the challenge. When Christians complain to me that this Jesus stuff isn't working, when I ask them, are you living for Jesus? I don't mean, do you like Jesus? I don't mean, are you a fan of Jesus? But rather, are you living how Jesus wants you to live? That includes resting. Have you stopped sleeping around? Have you stopped getting drunk on Friday night, Saturday and Sunday, or what we call Clear Lake Summers, people? Are you spending time and making Jesus the object of your affection instead of your career and everything else? And when someone says to me, well, well, no, I'm not really doing that. No wonder it's not working. No wonder it's not leading to life because you're now, you went the wrong direction instead of going with the current. 
You went the opposite way and now you're hitting the rocks. Now your tube's getting hung up. You're still a child of the king. You're still loved, but you went off course. This morning is your opportunity to repent and turn back to the king. Amen? We need a people who learn to strive to be like, like Jesus. I had a friend of mine who said, Jason, I go to NIP Fitness every, every Sunday and I watch all the people working out. I even took one of the classes, but I'm not losing any weight. Well, I asked them, are you, are you working out? Well, no, but I've got this manual that I've highlighted all over the place. I'm watching other people do it. I go to the class. Well, are you participating in the class? No, but I go to it and I watch it. No wonder you're not losing it because you're not doing the work. The real work is entrusting God. And here's the divine irony. It's resting first. Not striving to earn, striving to rest. The yoke of Jesus is easy in life, but there's still work. The difference is simple though. You don't have to fight the current, you just have to go with it. You have to hold on to that tube and you have to listen. Listen to where the Spirit and God's Word is leaving you. So how do you make space? And I'm going to end with this. You make space by leaving room in your life, by finding the rhythms of grace. That rhythm means it's not forced, it's not a ritual, it's something that you're listening through for those pauses throughout the day to pay attention to Jesus. The way of Jesus brings freedom. It is the real hard work of following Christ. We resist human striving by resting in our relationship with the king, by going with the current. This morning, if that's something you need to work through, would you do me a favor? Would you just raise a hand up to the Lord? I want to pray over you. If you struggle with striving, keep your hand up. I'm going to pray a blessing over you, and then we're going to take our tithes and offering. Lord, it is so easy to get caught up in the busyness of life, of trying to make people happy, trying to satisfy needs, of trying to earn a living, and all these things are good. But God, it's rest that you declared holy. Lord, you've asked us to strive to become like Jesus. So for every person whose hand is raised this morning, God, I pray that you would meet with them, that they would find their rest in you. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you for all that God is doing and all that you've done. May we find our rest in the King of kings and the Lord of lords, in his yoke that is easy and his burden is light.